This evening's scripture is Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 8. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the the wood of the burnt offering and said, and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Josh Havman. I am the executive pastor at Grace. Um, Got the chance to be here last week for the panel. Got to be here this week to preach, and I get to come next week because for the fun of it, I guess. It's good to be with you guys. We are in a series that we have called Living Stones, and we've called it that because Peter, in 1 Peter, describes, he uses the analogy for the church this way, that we are, all of us, like living stones being built up into a house for God where his Holy Spirit can dwell. And it is not just us, but in fact, God has been building this house on Christ, the cornerstone, with people throughout generations, showing us how he is the builder and the architect and the planner and the person who has it all figured out and knows how it all works together. And so we have another opportunity tonight to see him doing that, to see him showing us how it all works together in the persons of Abraham and Isaac. In this series, uh, we've talked about God's promises, and we've talked about uh, trials that uh, largely people have invited on themselves, and we're going to do more of that tonight because something we're commonly doing. We're inviting trials in, we're experiencing trials, even the ones that we haven't invited in, and it kind of comes to a head tonight with Abraham and Isaac, and we see a trial that none of us wants to face. We see a trial that's very difficult, and so it bears spending some time on. Before we go, um, I know Steve just prayed, Uh, I know we just had uh, the reading of the word, that should be enough preamble, but I want to pray now before we get going uh, further into this message, because... There's some heavy stuff here, so let's pray a minute. Lord, thank you for giving us this word about your children, about Abraham and his son Isaac. Thank you for giving us your word, all of it together, Lord, as a testimony to who you are and what you do. I pray that you would be present with us tonight as we study it, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would direct us to understand what you would have us understand from your word. ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Make sure I have this on. Okay, so back in Genesis chapter 17, we're going to 22 tonight, but back in Genesis chapter 17, God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and then all kinds of stuff happens. So let's talk about some of that stuff, because 
You'll notice that the first verse for tonight, after these things, God tested Abraham, it suggests that we know what's going on. It says, after these things. So let's talk about what these things are. So God gives this covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. He says, I want you to circumcise yourself and all of the men that are with you, and this is going to be a lasting sign for you and for your descendants for generations. You're going to know that we have this special relationship with us. And then in Genesis chapter 18, God comes and he finally gives a specific time for Isaac to be born. Up until this point, they have not known, Abraham and Sarah have not known when this child of promise will come, but now they know. They know that in about a year's time, according to God himself, in Genesis chapter 18, that they're going to have a child. And then God says, oh, and by the way, there's some awful things happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so I want you to know about that. And so God and Abraham have this back and forth where Abraham is pleading for the people. He says, specifically, if uh, you know, there are so many righteous people, and then what if there are just a few less? And what if there are just a few less? And he finally gets down to five. And God says, fine, if there are just five righteous people, I'll spare this city. And he goes there and he can't find that many. He finds Lot and his wife and two daughters, and he gets them out of there. We see that in Genesis chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, there is another situation like the one that happened previously with Abraham, where he encounters a powerful ruler, and he says to Sarah, hey, tell everybody that you're my sister. Don't say that you're my wife. It doesn't go well, as you might imagine. And then finally, in Genesis chapter 21, Isaac is born, and Hagar the maidservant who had been given to Abraham uh, to, to raise a son with, Ishmael, that son, those two are sent away. And Abimelech, who is the person that, uh, that Abraham recently tried to pass his wife off on as a sister, right? Abimelech and Abraham sign a treaty. So all these things happen before 22. And it's hard sometimes to read through the Old Testament narrative and understand why is the narrator structuring things this way? And I want to put to you this evening that Back in chapter 17, where there was the covenant of circumcision, and now coming into 22 and this, uh, this test that God has for Abraham, I think the things in between there, and other commentators agree, that the steps in between 17 and 22 are examples of how the covenant might have been broken, of how the promise might have been lost. So if you look at Genesis chapter 18, up until that point, I told you that there was no specific time for Isaac to be born until God comes and says it will happen in a year. And we know that years and years have passed and that Abraham and Sarah have taken it upon themselves to try and fulfill the promise. And so until that happens, there's a chance that the covenant may not be fulfilled, at least from the point of view of Abraham and the people that uh, are in his tradition. And then with Sodom and Gomorrah, there's turmoil in the area. There's sin happening nearby, and there's a chance that that could disrupt the fulfillment of the promise. If you recall, when Abraham was called by God, he, God said to Abraham, go to the land that I'll show you. Leave your father, leave your family, and go to the land that I'll show you. And Abraham does eventually, but he takes some family with him. And the family becomes a snare. At one point, Lot is kidnapped, uh, he's, he's taken captive, and Abraham has to go and rescue him. And now it looks like maybe he's going to be destroyed, right? And so his family has become a snare. That could get in the way. And obviously with Abimelech, if, if Abimelech or one of his people were to take Sarah into their home, if they were to have a child with her, that could very clearly disrupt the promise. So all of these things 
All of these things, the narrative is saying, look, here are potential barriers, and in all of them, God makes sure that the promise lasts. God is the one who's keeping this covenant, and God makes sure he is certain that his promise will stand. So Isaac is born. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away, so there's no more contest for who will be the heir. And Abimelech signs this treaty with Abraham, and there's security in the land. And so after all of these things, the covenant is secure, the child is here, and now, now, God is going to test Abraham. So God tests Abraham and he says, Abraham, and he says, here I am. But here's what I want us to see in in Genesis chapter 22 tonight. That when God does this, when he tests Abraham, it's with the knowledge that God's promises are certain. When God promises something, it's going to happen. He says, this will happen, it will happen. That God is going to use trials to test our faith. It's not for no reason, in other words, that we experience trial. Trials are not accidents. They're not merely the world and the brokenness of the world having an influence. My father recently was uh, traveling on a flight. He forgot his laptop in the, uh, the boarding area. And so he made everybody on the plane wait for him to go out and get his laptop and then come back on the plane. Right? My father was the source of trial for many people. But God used that trial. Undoubtedly, there was somebody on that plane, possibly my mother, who needed to practice patience. God uses trials, and trusting God in trial draws us closer to him. It's important to know the backstory. It's important to know that there were all of these challenges to the covenant, at least as Abraham or as the people who are reading the words of Moses, the story of Genesis, as they would have experienced it. It's good for them to know that God's promises are certain, to see again and again and again. It's good for us to see again and again and again that God's promises are certain. But we now need to see how he is operating in trial. So let's look at this trial. Uh, Let's look at his promises actually first. Recap, Adam and Eve. What did God promise to Adam and Eve? He said, you can have all of the trees in the garden for food. He said, just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat it, then you will die. And he keeps that promise. We don't really like that he keeps that promise, but he keeps that promise. And then he says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the entire world in a flood, but I'm going to save your family. And he keeps both of those promises. And now he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. His name was Abram, exalted father. Now it's Abraham, father of many nations. I'm going to do this for you. And now he's got Isaac. Isaac has been born. And so he has the real tangible son that he can touch, that he can hold. It's a real thing. It happened. So God has kept his promises But here are trials. Here is a test. So what kind of test is it? Let's figure out what kind of test it is. Because there are different kinds of tests. Some of them are tests uh, that we bring on ourselves. Volitional tests. Things that we choose for ourselves. Like when Abraham, when Abraham chose, right, to tell people that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. That resulted in trials. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to. And we do the same thing. There are things that we choose that invite trials in. Bad choices that we make, poor choices that we make. There are also trials that result from omission, things that we fail to do. Not waiting on the Lord, not trusting in God. Trusting in in many other things, being quick to trust in other things. Like when Sarah says, Abraham, here, here's Hagar, have a child through her. I'm not going to wait for God to do his thing, we're going to do his thing. Right? And, And so by failing to wait, she enters into 
a volitional trial that she's made. There's also times when God makes trials. Uh, The Bible points to famine and plague and judgment, and I don't want you to hear me say that I think that every time there is a famine or a plague or there's some sort of natural disaster that we should be trying to figure out who God is putting through a test of faith. That is a fruitless exercise. Okay, when we see a tragedy in Turkey and Syria with 40,000 dead from an earthquake, it doesn't benefit us to try and figure out how God is using that for trial and test of faith. But we know that he does use those things. And we know that sometimes it has nothing to do with our actions. So take, for example, Jonah. You guys probably know the story of Jonah. God says to Jonah, go and teach the Ninevites, go proclaim the word to them that they're going to die and that they need to repent. And so Jonah fails to, right? He has a volitional, a bad choice, runs the other way. God swallows him in a fish, brings him where he needs to go. At the end of that story, though, at the end of that story, Jonah is upset because he thinks that God is going to have mercy. And so he's sitting outside of town waiting to see whether or not God will have mercy or whether he'll destroy the town of Nineveh. Of, of, uh, Nineveh. And, and it, it doesn't happen, right? But in the process... In the process, it gets hot and it gets windy and this plant grows up that God creates, causes it to grow up and give shade to Jonah. Totally of God's doing and then God takes it away and Jonah's upset. And the book of Jonah ends without resolution. It ends with God rebuking Jonah and saying, you are more concerned about this plant than you are about these people and about even the cattle in Nineveh because They're of greater worth than this plant, but you're more concerned about your own comfort. You're more concerned about lots of things. So we see God using natural things, right, to create and to bring trial. Um, And in case of Job, there's all kinds of natural disaster that happens to Job. Illness that happens to him. His children are destroyed when a whirlwind strikes the house that they're in. All kinds of things. And we know, we know from the scripture that Job didn't sin. He didn't bring those things on himself, but rather God allowed those things into his life as tests of faith. So in the context that God's promises are certain, what do we do with trials? We know that God uses them. We see God using them as tests of faith. We know some of them we've chosen for ourselves. We know some of them he's chosen for us. So after these things, God tests Abraham, Abraham rather, and so we might be tempted to ask, okay, we know God uses them, but why? Why, why trials? God, couldn't you just... Couldn't you just download the information into my head? Couldn't you just have a friend tell me nicely? What if you gave me parents who just led me in the way of the Lord? Parents, this works, right? You just tell your child what to do and they do it? I asked my son this in the first early morning service. He had no answer for why he doesn't do what I tell him to do. Because he's a human. Because we don't do what we've been told to do. But that's not really why God is using trials. Here are some reasons from Scripture. I'm going to leave those up there. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of them, but I will tell you what's going on in these different verses. In James chapter 2, James says famously, faith without works is dead. And so there is a reason for us to be tried in our faith, to, to experience trials, tests of faith, because we need to have evidence that we believe what we say we believe. There is a benefit to us being in trial, because it gives us an opportunity to act out our faith, to demonstrate. In 1 Peter, he says, the tested genuineness of our faith will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus. That our faith is proven to be genuine when it's tested, 
and that that glorifies God. And anytime we're doing anything that glorifies God, it's also for our good. So it is both for God's glory and for our good that we be tested, that our faith be tested. John 15, 2 is Jesus talking to his disciples about how the Heavenly Father is going to prune those who are on his branch. Right? There is a, there is a branch that is the Lord, and uh, I'm sorry, there is a, a root, a stem, uh, a trunk, and we are all connected to him, Jesus says, and he wants us to bear fruit. So he's going to prune us. He's going to cut us. He's going to test us. Trials and tests of faith because it will enable us to produce more fruit. And then finally, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we have to trust in God alone. We need trials. He doesn't say this directly. I'm, I'm applying what he's saying. But he said we need trials because otherwise we're going to trust in other things. The example here in 2 Corinthians is he's writing to them about his own trials, his and the people that he is traveling with. And he says, listen, we were persecuted. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. We were persecuted so that we despaired unto death. And he explains that this was necessary for them so that they would trust in God who raises the dead. He said, we could not let our faith stop with this life. We had to let our faith go on. It had to be pulled on by God to show us that we can't trust in anyone but God. If we trust in anything in this world, it will fail. Even our own lives, those will fail. So we needed to be taught, Paul says, to trust in the God who can raise the dead. So these are all reasons why God would use trials to test our faith. But what about this specific trial with Isaac? Why, why this trial? This is a difficult trial. There are lots of people who really don't like this passage. There are some people who see this passage or they hear this passage taught on and they're like, that's, that's awful, God. Why would you ever ask anyone to sacrifice their son? How can I love and worship a God who would ask anyone to sacrifice their own son? I can't answer that question exactly because I don't claim to know the entire mind of God, but I can tell you what I do know from Scripture. I do know that God makes a practice of belittling the gods of the people around his people. And child sacrifice has been common for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years in pagan parts of the world where people will give up their children, sacrifice their children, and the killing of the child is supposed to bring about the favor of the God. And if you've read this story... If you've read beyond what Andrew read tonight, you know that God does not actually kill Isaac. God is going to prevent the death of Isaac. And so I think at least part of the reason God does this is to show that he is not like those other gods, that he in fact does not take pleasure in the death of a child. And then also there is this person called Jesus. And we're going to get to him in a minute. But this is absolutely pointing us there. So let's read further uh, let's read again and then let's go on. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah or Moriah uh, and offer him there a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. I asked the question, why this trial? Why does, why does God do this trial? I said, in part, I think, because he wants to show how he's different from other gods, in part because he wants to point to Jesus, but in part because this is the trial that Abraham needs. Understand that Abraham has struggled up until this point. Abraham and Sarah have both struggled up until this point to believe that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And they've tried to bring it about their own way. They've tried to ensure their safety in their own way. They've tried to bring about a child in their own way. And it hasn't been good. And I think this is the test that Abraham needs. And right here in verse 8, we see Abraham passing the test. Either he's lying to his son, Isaac, or he's passing the test here, saying God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. We're going to see later in the book of Hebrews how the writer of Hebrews says, either Abraham believed that God was going to give him back or that he was going to raise him from the dead. And that's kind of what happens, right? Because it's like he's going to die and then God gives his son back to him. So this is the test that Abraham needs. It's not the test that all of us need, but this is the test that Abraham needs. You see, Abraham had these trials of uh, sin, certain sin, behavior that he had chosen, going to the land that I will show you, leave your father, leave your father's family. He kind of does that, right? I will give you a son. I'm going to also make my own God. Is that okay? He kind of follows that. But then there's also the temptation to turn Isaac into an idol, a homemade idol, a self-made idol, if you will. Because this finally is the promise, isn't it? Isn't Isaac the promise? Didn't God say, to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Didn't he say, I'm going to make you a blessing and I'm going to bless all of the nations of the world through your offspring? And now here, isn't this kid, isn't he it? Well, that's the test. Is he it or is it the God who has given him? You see, Isaac, his only son whom he loves, is a sign of the promise but he is not the complete fulfillment of the promise. He is only one step in the long path that God has planned. And all of those steps, all of those steps are limited pieces, but the promise keeper, the gift giver, is the one who can be trusted over and above all of those things. So why this test? Well, I think it's the one Abraham needs, and I think it's one that we also need sometime when we want to trust the gift over the giver. Think about the things that you have in your life, the people that you have in your life that are good, that are God-given people, God-given things that you treasure. And ask yourself, do I treasure those things more than I treasure the one who gave them to me? If God were to ask me to give that thing up to him, not even in this sort of dramatic fashion, right? But let's say there's a car accident or there's a cancer diagnosis or there's just 
a drifting away. And God asks you to give up something that you love. Are you going to trust the one who gave it to you or are you going to trust the thing? So that's the test. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, laid the wood, bound Isaac, laid him on the altar. Abraham reaches out, takes the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. How fast do you think that here I am came out of Abraham's mouth? Even though Isaac is not the complete fulfillment of the promise, he's still precious to Abraham. He's still his son whom he loves. And of course, we should continue to want the good things. Don't hear me say we should stop continuing to want the good things that God has given us. But we can't treasure them more than the one who gave them to us. And here I think we see Abraham figuring it out. He's learning this. He's understanding this balance. God, I can't do this thing for you. You have given me the promise. You have to fulfill the promise. But I need to trust you. And so I'm going to trust you all the way to putting my son on the altar. Isaac probably isn't an infant, right? Isaac is talking. Isaac is carrying the bundle of wood. Isaac knows what's going on. And he's bound on the altar. Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing seeing as you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. His faith is not dead. He is working out his faith. And this trusting in God in trial is drawing Abraham closer. If it is God's test of faith, I'm going to put this to you. If it is God's test of faith, it's good. And you, again, you can look at this and you can say, how can this be good? How can this be good? Wait for just a minute until we start to talk about Jesus. But I believe that this is a good test of faith. It calls us, if it's a good test of faith, if it's God's test, to reject sin. Abraham has the opportunity to sin again here. Abraham can say to Sarah, when he receives the word from God, hey, God said this about sacrificing our son. Should I? What do you think? Charles Spurgeon, by the way, says it was wisdom that motivated Abraham not to tell Sarah that he got this word from God. I'm not sure about that. But he could have, right? Abraham could have gone to Sarah and said, what do you think? He could have said to Isaac, hey, God said this, I think I've got a better plan. He could have done any number of things that would have been sin, and he rejects those. It calls us to release everything. If it's God's test, if it's his good test, he's going to ask us to give up everything. Not just a thing, everything. Complete and total dependence on him, but he's going to complete the test as well. That's what makes it good. You see, Abraham lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, behind him is a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. A substitution. Isaac doesn't need to be sacrificed. God provided the ram. Just as Abraham told his son God would provide, God did. And so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It's a good test. It's God's test. It calls Abraham to reject sin. It calls him to give up everything. The thing that he understands 
to be the focal point of the promise, give that back to God. And God says, I'm going to help you complete this test. In fact, I'm going to give you the sacrifice. And then the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time and he says, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashores. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returns to the young men and they rose and they went to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God's promises are certain. He uses trials to test our faith and when we trust in him in trial, it is going to draw us closer to him. I want to read some of these verses for you tonight uh, because I just want to point you to other places in scripture where we see these things. It's happening here. All of that is happening here for Abraham. But I want to remind you that there are other places in scripture where God is telling us these things. So in, Ex- I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy, um, we have Moses address- addressing the people of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land. And he tells them something that should sound familiar to you. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous and do not fear or be in dread of them, the people in the land that you're going into. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. You might think, no, wait a minute, that's, that's God talking to the Israelites. He's not going to leave them or forsake them. You're right. So let's turn back to Hebrews, other end of the Bible. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now wait a minute, that's to the Hebrews, that's not to us either. But who here loves money? This is written to us as well. Our temptation is to secure everything for ourselves. The Israelites were afraid to go into the promised land because of the people there. We're afraid of all manner of things. And we look to use our gifts, our our intellectual gifts, our work, the sweat of our brow, our money to secure everything that we need. And God says, no, I will never leave you or forsake you. Those good gifts that you have, I gave them to you, but you cannot trust in them. You have to trust in me. I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says something very similar when he commissions his disciples, saying, I am with you until the end of the age. I want you to go out. I want you to baptize people in my name. I want you to teach them to obey all that I've commanded, and I am with you. And he is with us, and he is certain. And he's going to use trials to test our faith. If you're still in Hebrews, turn back to chapter 11. This is interesting because it is the description of this event from the New Testament. So the author of Hebrews is writing about all of these people who have demonstrated their faith, who have been tested in their faith. And he says this about Abraham in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. He had received the promise. He'd been given not only the promise, but now the good gift, the child, and he's in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Just in case we forgot that Isaac was supposed to be the one that started this whole thing, the rolling. It's supposed to be Isaac. 
And it says, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is the thought process that we see in Abraham, that God is using this trial to test my faith. I can trust this God. He has shown me again and again and again throughout this whole process that he is certain, he's true. Even though I've messed it up, he hasn't. He's going to do this. And so even if Isaac has to die, I know that God will give him back to me. And then finally, a couple of different passages in John. In John chapter 8, Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. They call him Satan. He says no, right? It's a good back and forth. And they say, we're children of Abraham. And he says, listen, let's talk about that Abraham guy. Because Abraham, if he is your father, he said something interesting. Uh, He has done something interesting. In fact, he has testified about me. This is from verse uh, 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's the only place in scripture that we have a reference to this. We don't have any other references in the Bible to Abraham seeing Jesus' day. It's not like he's the 13th um, apostle, right, or disciple. He's not out on a boat with Peter. But somehow Jesus says that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. We don't know exactly what he means, but we do know about this trial. And we do know that this trial points us directly to the same sort of trial that Jesus has. And Abraham rejoiced. Jesus tells us this. This is from Jesus. So he says, Abraham sees me and he rejoices. So we know that that passage is pointing us to the gospel. John 15 talks about people laying down their lives. And that's important here because if there's anything that strikes us as really wrong about the, the, the passage with Isaac beyond just sacrificing a child, it's the fact that Isaac doesn't seem to have any say in this, right? Isaac is being offered up as a sacrifice. And we say, I think most of us would say, he should at least have a choice, right? He should at least get to say whether I want to participate in this or not. And Jesus says, you know what? In fact, in fact, if you lay down your life for your friends, that's the greatest love that you can have. And in fact, I'm going to do that for you. So those old sacrificial systems where you offered up a sheep or a goat or those gods that you used to worship where they said, offer up your children, don't do that. Don't even do the thing that you did previously with the temple. No, believe in me. Believe in me and trust me. My promises are certain. These trials that you're going through you're going to have them. Don't worry about them. I have overcome the world, he says. And then the last verses I reference are when Jesus appears to Thomas. And Thomas, as many of you know, wants to see Jesus' wounds in his hands and in his side. And then when he sees, he believes. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen, but have believed. So you're not going to get to see anybody's son offered up on an altar and a ram substituted tonight. But you can read in the New Testament, in all of the Gospels, about how Jesus was offered by God as a sacrifice for all of us. About how he died, how he took away all of our sin, and about how he rose again. And you're not going to get to see him physically here tonight. I don't think he's invited. He's welcome to show. 
but I don't think you're going to see him, and yet if you believe, you will be blessed because of it. Because he absolutely will transform your life. And he is absolutely both the promise and the promise keeper. So I encourage you tonight, if you have trials, let God use those trials to draw you close to him and ask him to show you himself because he has been through the worst trial that any of us could ever face and he has come out on the other side victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have offered up your own life, that your father gave you and that you were sacrificed for our sake and that by believing in you, we can have life everlasting. Holy God, what an amazing gift. And you are both the gift and the giver and we praise you. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Son, we thank you. Help us to trust you in the trial, Lord, in the time of joy, in all that we do. I pray that we would trust you, trust that your promises are certain and true, that you are good. Ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.